0: Uh, welcome everybody to uh, RYN, Uh, I would like to introduce myself, my name is Les Newsom. I, uh, uh, my relationship to RYN began about 23 years ago uh, when I got on the board in 1995. I served on the board with RYN for about 10 years until 2005 uh, and in 2005 started um, participating in uh, youth leader training. So I guess it's, I don't know, 10, 13, this whole um, uh, thing on YLT actually started uh, as a seminar at our summer beach conference uh, in about 1996 uh, uh, that I taught. And so it's really incredibly gratifying to kind of see how this thing has grown uh, and what it's turned into um, as far as uh, all y'all's involvement in it. So it's just great to sort of bring some things. Uh, Just to give you a little piece of my own personal history, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, got involved in youth ministry uh, my senior year in high school. Uh, worked through in my, in, in my youth department in my church all the way through college. I stayed at home to go to college, which was a mistake, um, but that's a different story. Uh, left there to go to seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, for three years, I left there uh, to start to work with Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF for short. Uh, at the University of Memphis, where I had gone to school. Uh, I was there for five years where I met my lovely wife, Ginger, uh, and we got married two years into that, which was great. Uh, and then in the summer of 1999, uh, we moved about an hour south of Memphis to Oxford, Mississippi, uh, uh, where we, I, I was the campus minister uh, at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, for 12 years until 2011. Uh, lots of you folks were around during that time, which is fun. Um, In 2011, I became an area coordinator for uh, Reform University Fellowship, covered a territory that we called RUF Mid-South, which was Alabama, Mississippi, West Tennessee, and Arkansas, about 20 campuses. So I traveled a lot for the last seven years. And about a year ago this week, actually, uh, uh, I uh, received a call from our local church there in Oxford, Christ Presbyterian Church, to be the lead pastor there, which I started in July 1st. So I'm one of those experienced pastors, seven whole months on the job, uh, and don't know the first thing of what I'm doing. But one of the more gratifying parts of of the last seven months has been sort of being able to see uh, youth ministry in a little bit of a different light, kind of from a front uh, sort of row seat. Um, Obviously, a lot of uh, RYM's uh, philosophical commitments as an organization uh, sort of had their birthplace in uh, the campus ministry of RUF. There's a lot of trade-off between those two organizations uh, that's been really exciting over the years to watch it mature uh, here at RYM uh, towards uh, youth leaders. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to taking that journey myself now because we've got a youth staff uh, that actually are all here uh, this week uh, going through RYM. So I'm about as invested in this uh, group as I can possibly get. What we want to do today um, is to revisit this question of what we mean when we talk about a philosophy of ministry, which may not be the most simple way to introduce the topic, but it's my job to sort of establish for you the the relevance of this question uh, about a philosophy of ministry and why we would ever have this conversation. Um, Your first year is just the um, experience of lingo, right? We threw a bunch of data at you. We threw some drawings at you. Uh, We we put you in some seminars and you kind of let it kind of whiz past you. But it's really hard to understand the relevance and connection of having a philosophy of ministry in that first year. You need to live with it for about a year before you ever come back and try to put things back together again. That's what this seminar today is all about and kind of where I want to uh, uh, dive into for the rest of our time. So just in terms of uh, method, um, I really want to encourage you... Uh, and actually ask you to engage in the process, uh, which means um, ask as many questions as you possibly want and can. It's impossible to be irrelevant on a question in, in that regard. Um, I like people to sort of uh, feel it out. But where I really want to go with this is trying to establish what we mean by a philosophy of ministry and how well you feel like you might do it even telling people what that is. Because until we know what it is, we don't really know what our activity here at RYM is about. But my hope is, is that you'll walk away from here with a better renewed sense of why it's important. um, What RYM is sort of commending to you as a uh, a sort of a scheme of looking at your ministry through. And then that you'd come back in the years to come, every year, and test that thesis. Test it to see whether it's working out in the ever-changing landscape uh, that is youth ministry. Okay? Um, and what I want to begin with on this question of what is a philosophy of ministry, that's sort of the way that we're going to deal with it this morning. I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes, and then we'll take a break. Um, you know, we, we shorthanded POM, for some reason that just bothers me, so I usually just say uh, philosophy of ministry, longhand. Um, and I want to start by telling uh, about four or five stories, uh, just to make, try to make things interesting, uh, to illustrate uh, an important point that people oftentimes Uh, miss when they're thinking about ministry in general. Uh, And the first one is a a Christmas story. Uh, So there's a family that used to attend our church who a number of years ago made uh, the the fateful decision uh, to be godly parents and, and tell their children that there is no Santa Claus. Because um, God forbid our children should believe that there was a benevolent person that would come and give you presents you know, for the holidays. You know, that would be the worst possible thing. And goodness knows what's ruined young people today is the idea of Santa Claus. So by all means, let's blow it up for them at age three. So they remember, um, if you can't hear the sarcasm, you're not going to the so they're going to tell their, their four-year-old that there is no Santa Claus, which is a, which is a, a dangerous prospect, you know? Because it ain't like that guy's going to keep it to himself. Mm-hmm. You know? He's going to go back, and he's going to go to kindergarten. He's going to ruin it for all the other parents, and then the other parents hate you for doing that? Like things you don't think about. You don't have kids. So anyway, so they sit him down, and they have this really big talk. So they're like, look, we want to let you know um, about Christmas. We want to talk to you about Christmas. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's four years old. Right, right. He said, you know, lots of people uh, talk about Uh, Santa Claus, you know, and they talk about how he kind of comes into our house and drops presents off. We just want to let let you know that Santa Claus, Santa Claus is make-believe. Like, there's not a real person in sort of red pajamas and a hat uh, that comes and delivers presents for you. Like, we're the ones that bring you the presents, but there's a lot of people around that like to kind of play, pretend, but we always want to be honest with you and tell you, you know, kind of what's going on. Okay. Oh, All right. They said that when they had this conversation, with he was four years old, that he registered with perfect understanding and even felt a little bit like honored and privileged to be sort of in on the secret, you know? Like, oh, gotcha, gotcha, no Santa Claus. So they had this conversation. They were like, well, that went fairly well. You know, he didn't cry, you know, he didn't burst into tears, He didn't feel betrayed, you know? Maybe this is the way to sort of treat our children. Well, six months later, that was in the spring of a particular year, Six months later, it's around November, and they're sitting around the dinner table talking to him. He's now five years old, talking to him about what he would like for Christmas. And he says, well, you know, what I really, really want is I want that new PlayStation that all my friends have. Maybe it was the little handheld thing. This was many years ago. So who knows what it was? And it was my friend, who was the father, uh, looked at and was like, well, you know, to be honest with you, son, uh, we'll do our best. But... Like, those things are awfully expensive. And it hasn't really been that great a year. And so we're not exactly sure what we'll be able to do in that regard. <coughs> we'll just have to see what we can do. He said, literally, his son just kind of sat there and put his fork down and was like, Well, what do you care how expensive it is? Santa Claus is going to bring the present one way or another. doesn't cost you anything. And literally, he just kind of sat there and listened to his son say that. And he was like, He looked at his wife. He looked back at his son. He was like, But we ta- we told you. <laughs> Six months ago, they're like, there's no Santa Claus. And He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when is he going to bring the PlayStation to the house? What happened? I want you to diagnose that little event. And look, if you haven't heard, I think that telling your children that there is no Santa Claus is foolish. If you're that people that wants to be the people, knock yourself out. We're not going to have that conversation, though, now. Okay? <laughs> That's not why we're here. But tell me what happened in that little interaction Maybe the child was deaf, you might think. Maybe maybe he, he was hard of hearing. Maybe he had a learning disability. None of those things are true. But tell me what happened. This is the audience participation portion of the presentation.
1: It doesn't matter what the family told him. The child believes he exists.
0: Why? He was told. I gave him the facts. I mean, just bam, bam, bam. I laid it out for him. He wants to. Because he wants to? Why does he want to? He wants something to believe in want something to believe in. That's possible. Is there any other influence on that child though, at that point? Let me ask you a question. How powerful in the mind of the child is the culture of Christmas? Is there an image? Is there a conversation? Is there a... pop culture reference? Is there a cartoon? Cue the deer. Cue the deer. Do y'all see the deer running out across the band? No, no, six or seven years. Bambi and her family just trotting across the deer. This is like a warm junkie inside. Is there anything that's more culturally accepted than the fact that Christmas equals Santa Claus for a child and the wonder of a child? The culture of that child's world Surrounding Christmas, okay. In Greek, Jesus' name, the Christ, is spelled chi. Please don't be the put the Christ back at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a Kairos. Thank it's an X. It's a Greek letter. <laughs> <coughs> the culture surrounding Christmas is such that even when given direct exposure to the facts. The facts were twisted and molded in accordance to the cultural norm. You follow that? It didn't make a dent in this kid's life. You do, I mean, literally, sit them down. You do know there is no Santa Claus, right? No Santa Claus. Yes, Daddy, no Santa Claus. When will he be here to bring the PlayStation? See what I'm saying? Like It doesn't matter because whatever information gets presented to that child They are filtering through a grid that is so powerful that it takes a lot of work to overcome and penetrate, right? Uh, That is what we are talking about when we talk about the culture of your youth group. We're also going to spend a little time talking about the culture of your church, since there's an assumption that your youth group is a part of your church. And what's interesting about this, I think, is, is most of the time sort of self aware. Uh, theologically self-conscious people like Reformed youth uh, ministries, we are really fixated on this over here. We want to spend all the time being like, let's make sure that I get the message right. And God bless it, okay? Honestly, if you look at the the sort of Reformed and Presbyterian, Reformed and Baptist, Reformed, Acts 29, whatever movement that's sort of (coughs) uh, burgeoning in America at this time, my guess is is our role in worldwide Christianity is to be the explainers. <laughs> you know, the Pentecostals are out there, you know, pushing out into, you know, spirit-filled whatever, right? And we're over here explaining stuff. And you know what? That's okay. That's all right. I'm, I'm actually comfortable with that particular role in worldwide like Christianity. Uh, we can be a little bit of gatekeepers in that regard. But it ain't like we the be-all end-all, right? In terms of what God's doing in the world. We get so fixated on this that we completely miss the fact that we're bumping up against a schema in the mind of a child at four years old that can be so powerful that these things will get interpreted completely in exactly the opposite way. (laughs) They will hear the exact opposite of what you say because the culture surrounding it is as powerful as it is. Okay? Let me give you another example Uh, since we're telling stories here. Um, So as a campus minister... I uh, ended up spending probably an inordinate amount of time uh, doing some thinking about the question of dating, okay? Uh, and dating is a great question uh, in modern uh, uh, American life, um, and a lot of interesting features. It's a little pet topic. I think if you, if you don't have some interest in the mating ritual of the modern American teenager, <laughs> you're probably in the wrong job. You need to have some interest in it, at least to some degree. Um, but I came to um, a number of convictions uh, through my own dating life, and mostly through the, the, the idiotic things that I did. Um, there is a uh, history of which I am greatly ashamed. Um, I usually refer to anyone who knew me prior to the age of 26 as a group of people to whom I owe an apology. All right, that's As a group, uh, just younger than 26, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> and one of the reasons is because of the way in which I engaged in the modern American dating ritual, or at least whatever the version of it was in the 1980s when I was in the dateable range, okay? What I came to sort of believe was that most of the advice that I was getting from youth-oriented uh, uh, ministry types was fundamentally moralistic. Here's a pattern of appropriate behaviors uh, that are acceptable for Christian young people. Um, and, uh, don't do those. (coughs) Make sure you do these, right? Um, and the advice would sort of be like, well, step number one, um, don't ever put yourself in a place where you might be tempted to sin sexually. It's one of the worst pieces of advice you could ever give anybody because the point is, is to get to a place where you can sin sexually. Like that's the whole point, right? I'm, I'm looking for those opportunities to make her compromise her values. Ladies, I'm kidding a little bit. Y'all give me really strange looks right now. It's a joke. you like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Um, anyway, it, was, it never addressed what I felt like it, there was something missing. Or even better yet, um, you, know, you find yourself giving advice that really is so strange. Like, whatever you do, don't pray with the person you're dating. i like immediately that ought to sound strange. It ought to sound strange. Now look, it may be good advice. Some of you are going to be like, I think it's wrong to pray because it creates intimacy between you and then you want to have sex with them. And I'll be like, I don't know that that ever crossed anyone's mind. Man, we just prayed together and I really want to sleep together. Maybe you did. I don't know. People can do it. It always felt like there was something else going on. Okay? And what I came to believe was the, the real problem in the whole dating ritual was understanding the definition of what this was. Okay? Um, because if you think about it, every relationship that we have tends to, to fall out into a certain definition. Okay? Uh, from the earliest of ages, I would argue. From the moment of your birth, there was an innate intuitive, uh, unspoken understanding of the relationship between you and your mother. all right? Uh, that could have been nothing more than your infant mind thinking to itself, okay, I'm the needy one. you are the need giver. When I cry, it's your signal to meet my needs. okay That's a rudimentary understanding of how an infant sees their world. That's the definition of this relationship, old lady. I'm hungry, I'm wet, you know. I'm you know, uh, mad, whatever. You meet my needs. They understand that relationship. Later on, you became a child and you went off to school and there was a brand new relationship. Someone called a teacher, right? And you sat in the classroom and you found out that there were certain rules that were appropriate to this particular relationship. You had to sit quietly in your seat with your hands folded in your lap and you waited for the teacher to call on you before you spoke. So teacher-student was like a new definition that came with a new set of behaviors that were appropriate to that definition. Follow me? Later on, you became a teenager and you kind of grew a personality uh, and and a bit of a will, as it were, and suddenly you found out that the relationship between you and your parents was a bit strained. And your parents would say things to you like this, you are not going to talk to me that way. And somewhere in your mind, you thought to yourself, oh, okay, so now this relationship is changing a bit in this rather awkward period known as adolescence. There are other behaviors now that are not appropriate, right? Later on, some of us got married, and there was a brand new sense of wonderment about, okay, now that we said I do, what does it look like to think about appropriate behaviors? So here's my question, class. (laughs) What is the definition of dating. Because again, all the advice I ever got was like data point, data point, data. Don't do this, stay away from that. Make sure you always do this. Don't ever pray. Okay? And here's what you do, and you'll have a good dating relationship. But I began to realize that all of these behaviors are to some degree born from a definition. And invariably things get set on a certain trajectory once you define the relationship, or, as we call it, the DTR. Have you all had the DTR yet? Have you defined the relationship? Have you had the talk, right? That's what it's about. You need to have the talk. But here's the crazy thing. And the answer, of course, is, yeah, We, well, you know, I was dating, we had the talk. You know, that's what we were dating. But what's crazy about this is nobody actually knows what they're defining because it's utterly anemic. This is what the talk is basically it. So it's like, no. <sighs> I think it's gonna be this hard, but like, uh, man, I've just been having the best time with you. It's just been awesome. I think you're so awesome, and uh, I uh, I, just—I don't want to date anybody else but you. To which she responds, "I did not think of the same thing. I only want to date you." You're like, "Okay, we're dating. Let's go make out." Fascinating the door that kind of opens up when all I say to someone is, is I only want to date you, which is which is an incredibly anemic definition. Am I wrong? Because all you've said is, is I like being with you right now. <laughs> what about next weekend, right? And oh, for years, I would endure these conversations with, with college students and high school students who would be like, well, you know, so-and-so is, uh, like, we're committed. And I'd be like... You're committed to what? We know we're only going to date each other. I say, okay, okay, okay. Let's say, though, in a month or six months or whatever, you kind of decide you want to date somebody else. What do you do then? Oh, you well, know, I guess we'd have to break up. I'm like, okay, great, got it. But you can call whatever you're doing whatever you want. That's not a commitment. Okay? What it is, is agreement to sort of be around each other until I get sick of you. (laughs) Right? Is that not what all dating is? All dating is, is two people trying each other on to see whether it's a decent fit. Uh, And you either are going to get married or you're going to break up. Those are the only two telos that you can arrive at. Telai, what's the plural of telos? Telos, it's not teloses. <laughs> well, Figure that seminary boy. <laughs> <a little> time. <laughs> oh, boy. I like tell them that works for me. That's the only place where I can go. Unless there's something else going on. So this is my argument. I believe there are only three ultimate definitions of dating It always comes in three. It's triad day at RYN. <laughs> definition number one: you can be friends. Okay? A friendship the definition of the relationship always has to be about the future, by the way. Defining a relationship has to be about the future. Where are we going? What are we going to be? What are your intentions? That's what our great grandparents used to ask when suitors would come over to the house. What are your intentions with my daughter? And in our kind of warped, porn riddled world, we think that was a sexual statement. Had nothing to do with sexuality. It was saying, you are here to date my daughter. Now explain to me the nature of your intentions. Are you here simply as a casual friendship? Do you consider her a friend? Are you here with other thoughts that maybe there might be something happening? Or do you wanna marry her? I'd like to know because I'm gonna be, as her father, a primary resource for her to help her translate your actions in terms of their intentions. I'm here to help her with that, right? This is not courtship, but okay? It's helping people understand what the definition of a relationship is. So you can be friends, which are basically saying, I have no other intention with this relationship than I have with any other brother and sister in Christ. That's what a friendship is. Any other brother and sister? There's nothing else here. No matter what time we spend, no matter what else, I see all of this interaction as being nothing but friends. Number two. The other thing is you can be engaged. Okay? You can be engaged. Um, Engagement basically says we are going to get married. And I'm talking about with a date. A lot of people will say they're going to get married. We're just totally going to get married. We're freshmen in high school, but we're going to get married. No, no, no. You're engaged when you've got one of these rings, right? Somebody hold up their ring. Hold up your ring there. There we go. You've got one of these, okay? You're engaged when you've got one of those rings, and you're on your way there. You've got a dance. You're headed someplace, right? That's what it means. The definition is. The last one is the one that really trips people up. And for lack of a better phrase, I'm going to call it the I don't know definition. I don't know. Maybe it might be that there's something here of an eternal nature. It might be that we'll get sick of each other in a month. I don't know. But here's my question: Do you recognize? Is if this is the definition? What are the behaviors that are appropriate to each definition? All right. Let's say you said that you're just friends. What about appropriate behaviors if you say you're just friends? Well. I would say that if you are making sexual advances to someone to whom you simply refer to as your friend, that is inconsistent with the definition. Why? Because sex is a way of saying forever. Sex is a way of saying, the ecstasy of sexual experience is a metaphor that God has given his people to say, I will be with you for forever. In an ecstasy of sexuality. It's pointing to, uh, to distance to length of time. It's a metaphor that God's given His people, right? It's a reason why people will neither be married nor given given in marriage in heaven. Sexuality will be transformed in heaven. Why? Because we will have what an orgasm was intending to point to. Bear with me. <laughs> now this is when people raise their hand and like, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Have you ever heard of friends with benefits, Lois? Okay, go back and look. So back in the mid-2000s, there was this thing that came up. They're still doing it called the friends with benefits. No, we're just friends, but every now and then, you know, things get a little crazy. And that's what, we have this little sexual sidebar experience, right? What's fascinating about that movement is it really has died. There's a wonderful article that was written in the New York Times, 2006, 2007 or so, where a lady had gone and sort of done a deep dive into the high school system to find out about the Friends with Benefits movement. And what she discovered was, is it was all a lie. All this talk for being totally casual was some crazed fantasy dreamed up in the mind of some weirdo 14-year-old boy that he can have this sort of commitment-less sexual experience. Right? But people were getting hurt Badly. Of course they were. Because they were engaging in a behavior that belied the definition. Do you remember, recognize this as the source of all relational dysfunction? Relational dysfunction happens when you engage in a behavior that belies the definition. Bear with me for a second. What happens when a parent pursues a sexual relationship with their child? Utterly destructive. Powerfully destructive. Why? Because you just don't do that. Why don't you just do that? Because the definition of parent and child cannot bear the weight of that sexuality. It's inappropriate. And because it's inappropriate and consistent, it's destructive. Friends with benefits, was destructive? It still is, no matter how many times junior high boys dream it up again. Okay? Second one, what are the behaviors that are appropriate to being engaged? Right? I would say, any sexual relationship with someone else or even an intimate, intimate relationship with someone else. I, I think maybe it's a Tim Keller illustration. I was talking about a, a wedding we had heard about where the um, where the, uh, uh, the, the groom who was getting married decided to have a woman as his best man. Yeah. And you're like, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing. And this, the description was, you know, I'm marrying her, but she's my best friend. alright that would be interesting to see how that works good luck with that I would look and say that is probably behavior that is inconsistent with that definition alright now here's the zinger what are the behaviors that are appropriate to I don't know when you are unwilling to say that I'm going to marry you but you're also unwilling to say that there's no possibility of a relationship in the future here what is appropriate to that definition because here's the deal. This is the vast majority of what we call dating, okay? Now, you're saying, why are you spending 20 minutes talking about this? Because this is the conversation I've had with my daughters since they were born, okay? I mean, from the crib, we were talking about dating. Because they came to every RUF thing that we ever did, and I'm constantly sort of run this thing. How many you know, uh, marriage and dating and relationship series did you endure, Babs, two or three, during your time at, at Old Miss? Um, I mean, this was, this was so much in the water of our conversation because I had two beautiful little princesses of daughters. And they are gorgeous, and they are delightful and wonderful, and I'm so utterly enamored of them. I, I, I literally wish I could be as cool as my daughters. Um, especially my middle daughter, because she's the one who looks like me and acts like me, because that's the one that sort of we connect in the most. And Caroline was the one, my middle daughter, who always has been the one who was the most fascinated by this whole conversation. right? And this stuff especially. She was like, Daddy, you're so bright. Like why do people even start to date in high school? Because it just seems kind of pointless. Because you're not going to get married until he can pay for all the stuff that I want. That's a quote. That's a quote. Um, so so don't, you, don't you love her? Don't you already love her just because of that quote? Um, but I would sit and talk to Caroline about this whole sort of idea. And be like, sweetie, you know, you know, when you get into this overly committed, you're not really committed, relationship, Doesn't that suggest something about the future of the relationship that's just not true? Because I would would argue over and over and say, one of the great problems of dating is people are living in relationships that act like they know when they don't. Hence the inconsistency, and hence the hurt. I I was in a dating relationship, an exclusive dating relationship, for five years throughout college. Lots of people tried to come and reveal to me the pathology of that experience. And it was destructive to me. Still is. I'm 51. I'm still talking about it. It's about 18 through 24 years old yeah, time. Whenever you are inconsistent with that definition, it's destructive. It hurts people. And Caroline's imbibing every bit of it. Until she met Nick. Mm. <laughs> Nick was awfully cute. Okay? I'll go with Nick. Nick was cute. No question. <laughs> i would be like, that's a cute kid. No, I get that. I get the deal. And it turns out that Nick had an older brother. And the older brother was crazy about Caroline's best friend. You fit see where this is going now? So here's here's what you got against you. You got a cute boy named Nick, right? You also have you also have a best friend who is dating big brother to uh to cute Nick. See what was happening? And all of a sudden, we begin to rethink this whole principle, you know? But here's the deal. The great thing about it was is Ginger and I have always looked in, with our children and said, whatever you do, come and talk to us about it. So when the talk finally happened, and she trots into the – Ginger and I usually kind of prop up on the bed, watch television in our bedroom, and that's kind of where we have family conferences. They'll come up, pile up on the bed, and we have our family conference. And she was like, okay, love, I want to talk to you about this, but I, 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 just, I need you to understand what I'm saying. It's like, okay, okay that's great. She said, Nick and I are dating. And I was like, sweetheart, congratulations. I knew she was excited. So I'm not going to take a dump on her you know, joy. <laughs> i mean, like, that is so awesome. Because let's face it, that's a bit of a compliment. I mean, he likes her, and she likes him. i like, I want to rejoice over that to whatever I can. And it's not, like I did, it's not like I wondered whether she knew the deal. She wouldn't have been back there to talk to me about it if you know, she didn't know what I was going to say. And she said, but I want to talk to you about it. She said, Daddy, I mean, the thing is, the more that I've thought about it, and this is what she said, the truth is, I really just want to be able to say I have a boyfriend. And I looked at her and I said, God bless your heart. I said, now you're ready to have a healthy relationship. <laughs> and of course she didn't. And you know, three months later it was over. You know, it kind of ended. You know, he was not the right guy. He didn't know how to talk, didn't know how to share things. You've got to be able to talk if you're going to be with my Caroline, I promise you. Um, and it sort of ended. So here's the question. We're back to the question. How is it possible for her to get the kind of detail that you just had to endure from me in my own house? And then all of a sudden go out there and all of a sudden turn on a dime as soon as she gets in the middle of it. What just happened there? Culture. The culture around being a teenager is so loud and so pervasive and so immersive. Immersive. I m m e r s i v e. Is so immersive that even the best, clearest data points that you bring at them will always be filtered through that particular cultural influence. Following me here? Um, probably, I mean, let me do one more story and then we'll, uh, we'll take a time for questions and take a break. <coughs> probably the sort of canonical example. I'm, I've got three or four like geek illustrations. I apologize, I'm kind of an Apple person. You know, I'm one of those people. Uh, so if you're not a computer sort of thing, you can get up and go to the restroom if you need to right now. Um, I, I realize that you're not that kind of person, Dan, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> So um, in, in 2007, uh, there was the announcement that came out of Apple of a brand new device that completely revolutionized the world. And you're a naive if you don't think that this happened. And it's called the iPhone, right? And it was released. And it was fascinating to hear the reaction of the world. Every Apple fan was just like, must have one now. You know, there was this salivating that sort of went on over the world. A lot of people are like, that's really curious. Apple's going to make a phone? That's weird. Then there were the mockers. And there was no one that mocked Apple more than Microsoft. And it's hard to remember now, especially if you're in your 20s or early 30s. Um, Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was no way to overstate the monopoly that Microsoft had over the world of computing. They began with their motto in the late 1980s of a a computer in every household running Windows software, which by the late 90s they had arguably achieved. And then in the early 2000s had gone beyond into the enterprise sector and had Windows software running on almost every enterprise system. It was the universal language of computers. Probably don't have the internet if you don't have Windows influence at that point. And the president at that time, uh, uh, Gates had already gone on to do his philanthropy stuff, the president at that time was a guy named Steve Ballmer. Actually, just died about a year and a half ago, interestingly enough. Got up in front of everybody and mocked the iPhone. And he said, this quote went something like this. He said, um, I didn't write it down. Don't go on it. He went, said something to the effect of, there is literally no way that the iPhone is going to get even an ounce of market share. I guarantee it. <laughs> One of the most famous claim chowder, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, things you've ever gotten in, in, in computer history. There is no way the iPhone is going to get market share. Who has an iPhone right now in this room? Guess what? Steve Ballmer was wrong. <laughs> this is what's so crazy. You've got to understand that their influence was so universal that I was reading an article a number of months ago by a guy who was saying, the thing that would have been weird is if Steve Ballmer did not make fun of the iPhone. Because what was blinding Microsoft at that time was their raging success. In other words, your culture can be so powerful because it got there by good reasons. You could have had a successful semester in youth ministry and that very success may be the thing that cripples you going forward with that ministry. Because you've been successful, because you've done it well, because you've done it right. there's a, uh, a friend of mine that I have who lives in Palo Alto. He's a software developer in Palo Alto. He lives in a $6.5 million house that is 2,800 square feet. I'm not making that up. Um, his house, 2,800 square feet, costs the same as the church we're building in, in Christ Prez, uh, and ours is 31,000 square feet. How about that for, for a difference in what California uh, uh, what property value for? But I got to tour Stanford for the first time with my friend Carlos, Carlos Ramon. Carlos Ramon is what you would think he would be. He is a Latin who talks like this. Um, and always is passionate about whatever he says to you. Les, Lester, you must come with me to Stanford. And I will show you around the campus. He was, he was awesome. I've never had more fun. But what, what Carlos was telling me was, um, was talking to me about Stanford's vibe. And what Stanford says they build their philosophy of education on is one word. Anybody know what that word is? A little quiz. Is the word disruption. Disruption. If you're going to come to Stanford and be successful and be considered a successful alumni, it means that you walked into an industry and you created disruption. You disrupted it. You shook things up. You challenged the assumptions. Of course we look at that and say that's the classic liberal mindset. It's not bad. It pushes innovation in and of itself. right? But that's the question. Disruption, though, is inherently difficult because we as humans get into sort of patterns of thinking and behaving that are so persistent and are so, um, that are so um, in the background of our thinking and our doing that we don't even, they don't even allow for questions. Of course we mock what the other church is doing down the way, right? It would be weird if we didn't. Because we figured it out. They've not been to RYM. Even your success as a wildly successful youth director, on whatever categories you judge that success by, can be the very thing that ends up blinding you. Why? Because culture is a thing. On every level. What are the levels of culture? And I'll finish with this before we take a break. Get some questions. Not the levels of culture. What are the expressions of culture? There is a culture of your church. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> Everybody knows there's a culture in your church. There is a culture of youth. There is a youth culture. There are rules and assumptions that sort of govern the life of that child as they go to you know, Maple, High, Maple Street High School. You know what else? There's a culture of your youth group. And wisdom in a philosophy of ministry is going to take you into the nexus of all three of those things. And I'm going to unpack that statement in the next hour. What does it mean to be wise as we sort of pursue high school students being aware of these factors? What is my church? What is my youth group? And what is it like to be a youth? Somewhere in the midst of that, we want to be wise people that are deploying ministry in such a way that's successful, but successful in a way that actually might be different than the way you interpret success right now. All right, questions, comments. We can talk about dating. We can talk about. We can talk about. Um, is that what we are talking about? It's not the dating thing. We, can talk, about, we can talk about Christmas, Santa Claus. Oh, heck yeah. Cookies. Cookies? What you got? Clarification ideas? Yes? Um, this might be a longer conversation, but you said you guys at, at Old did a lot of dating stuff. Yeah. And that's something that we, don't, we haven't done, and I feel like it's important, but don't really know where to start, because yeah. a lot of materials are, like you said, they're,
1: not, they're moralistic, so. Sure, 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 and
0: moralistic or dated. Uh, dating is such a weird thing because five years later, it feels old, like old material. Um, I mean, all the trends that you read about uh, are, I think are true, uh, given the, to whatever degree my teenagers are helping me sort of understand the the common area. Dating as a formal like, hi, would you like to go to dinner with me? That's dead, that's a dinosaur, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, But don't be fooled, people are still pairing up all over the place. Uh, um, uh, The second thing is, the second trend that's sort of interesting is the plummeting of teen pregnancy rates. Mm -hmm. Like, shocking plummeting of teen pregnancy rates. Um, If you've read this, you know this, right? Like, teenagers are not getting pregnant anywhere near the degree. Like, we're back to, like, pre-1980 numbers in terms of teen pregnancies in America. Now, be very careful before you pat yourselves on the back and be like, well, all right. (laughs) Finally succeeded. Because it also turns out that married couples are not having sex either. We have now flipped the birth rate in America. Have you heard this yet? Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of births that have to happen to replace the people that are dying in any society. Does that make sense? Uh, to keep your society growing and moving, okay? Uh, and about a year and a half ago, we flipped to the negative side. That there are more people dying in America than are living. That's scary for your kids, and especially your grandkids, because typically that's when a society begins to kind of crumble underneath itself is when they're not reproducing uh, people to sort of fill in the places where they are, uh, where they were prior to. Um, and when it all that, why is all that the case? I think it's got to have something to do with the porn generation. I think it would be naive to think that that wasn't part of it. Uh, that, you know, there's a lot of folks that are looking at the, at the struggle with relationships and be like, why bother? You know, if all I want is, you know, sexuality, I can get that online whenever I want, however I want. There's got to be some of that. But in many ways, it probably is also a little bit of just good old-fashioned judgment. Um, you know, I, I, I can remember in the 80s when people were talking about the sexual revolution. and People were going crazy with this. And, you know, in the day, it'll be lawlessness in the streets. People who's just having sex on park benches in front of everybody. <laughs> and it just it felt like, mm, I don't know. And now what's happened, I think, is it's just, nobody's interested. That feels a little more like the judgment of God to me. Where he's like, okay, that's fine. You just want to have it. I mean, what, the thing that we thought would be the fulfillment of our desire sexually, namely the porn generation, has now been the crushing of our sexual desire. And there's an epidemic of married people not having sex. Did I say that? That's one of the bigger, scarier epidemics. Uh, that married couples are actually not sleeping together anymore. Like at all. Uh, overwhelming numbers when people dive into those particular uh, things. So there's some trending on the dating thing that will throw it off. But I'll say this. The question about what is this is still very fresh. Because if you think about it, if you start asking the question about definition of marriage, that not only works in dating, that works with your friendships as well. So we have this little Sunday night fellowship uh, that, at our church that beats every other week. And when I became the pastor in the summer, I was like, can I please hang on to the youth group? Because I still like meeting with the youth. They come to our house on Sunday nights and we sit around. And we always have um, uh, Q&A time. But I'm the one who asks the questions and they give the answers. And my question is, what is it like to be a teenager at Oxford High School, or Lafayette High School here in, in, in Oxford, Mississippi? And it we'll always have themes. And this last Sunday night's theme, night before last, we, I asked the question, what, what are the pitfalls, dangers, and struggles of making and keeping friends in Oxford? And I could not believe how overwhelming the response was. Oh, my gosh. I, blah, 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 started spewing information about how hard it is to make and keep friends. And the more and more when I hear it is, they just don't know what a friend is. And they're being driven by these raw insecurities and identity struggles that, are, that have not even crossed their mind to be the case. And so that comes into the dating thing as well. That's a good question. Other question. Thoughts or illustrations about culture. All right, great. I am going. Sorry. Yes. Do you have like a, um, so? with just leaving. I guess Memphis to go to Oxford in a the town, the situation. Mm. Do you have like a handful of questions you ask about your context to help you kind of um, diagnose a little bit about what, what is really going on here? That's exactly cool. what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Is what is the skill set? that I can be given, that I can grow into, that gives me the ability to understand my present context. That's exactly where we're going. I'm going to give that a title. Thanks for anticipating this. I'm going to call that skill a ministry dynamic, for lack of a better term. And I'm going to put a graphic up that will try to help illustrate what we mean by that. Right now, I just want you to get the big idea of the fact that there's this thing called a culture. It's out there. And I've got to understand it before I deploy ministry into it. And when we talk about a philosophy of ministry, that's what we mean.